This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to the podcast. How's it going, guys? Well, today we're taking a look on um, a history behind basically like the Wild West. So we're looking at what, why it was called the Wild West. We're going to debunk some of the myths, some, uh, some talk about some strange facts about the, the Wild West, mainly because I can remember growing up, my dad was really into all those Western movies and with those um, movie genre, and it was really captivated the country for a really long time. The Western, it brought back like the idea of some life, these lost traditions of the frontier, along with the ruggedness and the outlaws. And Americans really loved the Old West. They had ideas of the gunfights, the cowboys, Indians, stagecoach, robberies, all that stuff. And he had a flurry of all these movies that kind of romanticized this idea of the Wild West. And they really went off course. There's very few facts in those movies. Most of it's actually fiction. And like, so we're going to look at like the real, uh, regardless of that vision of the Wild West, and the cinema vision of the Wild West, we're going to kind of look in the contrast of what it actually was. Yep. And uh, this is an interesting fact. I feel like my time in communist Poland comes up every single time <laughs> we record a podcast. But so in the 80s, right, Poland is, you know, it's getting it's getting near kind of end of communism. Um, and a lot of westernized culture is kind of bringing being brought over to Poland. And one of the first things I was brought over was Western movies. And I specifically remember that the first movies that were really shown on TV, you know, on one of the one or two channels we had, I think at the time 80s was still one channel. It was like Friday night American movie. And what they would they would show would be Westerns. They would show like 1950s or 60s Westerns, because I guess that's all they could afford. And, and like that was my like American movie on TV. Well, they, they were popular in the 30s and the 40s. Like even you don't really see, I mean, they still every once in a while, there'll be a big Western movie that'll come out and be like, yeah. Oh, the return of the American Western. But it wasn't like those, I guess they used to be called spaghetti Westerns. Right. And it really gave people like, kind of like the podcast we talked about a while ago with um, Davy Crockett. It created this alternate narrative of the individual and yeah. became part of Americana. And a lot of people like, I guess you were, when you were a little kid over in your, uh, your, your communist country there, um, you saw you saw this Western team. You thought that was what the West was. That's what America yeah, was, and that, that was very something idea that happened a lot in in European countries. That's what America is like. America is like the wild, wild West. But really, America was never like the wild, wild West. And the the West during that time was not even like what you saw. I was going to say that wasn't even movies. like the wild, wild West. Yeah, yeah. no, no. All right. Like, what I think we want to do today is let's kind of talk about the idea of the West and the Cowboys and Indians, right? So we'll kind of challenge that narrative a little bit and provide some historical context to the Cowboys and Indian narrative. And then what we'll do is we'll kind of get into talking about the outlaws and the famous or infamous lawmen and kind of try to somewhere in there, we'll obviously throw in a bunch of other things, but that's the general plan. You know, when we talk about cowboys and Indians, if anything, it really should have been called soldiers and Indians because mm-hmm. um, cowboys and Indians didn't really come in contact with one another. Soldiers and Indians did because the United States had a full blown policy throughout 1800s to basically eradicate the West from Native Americans. And what they did is uh, they attempted to move Native Americans, as you know, this is kind of common knowledge now. Uh, to various reservations, but naturally Native Americans were, and again, it was hundreds of tribes, um, thousands of tribes, really, 
the Native Americans resisted. And through this resistance, we have what is known as Indian Wars. A lot of people may not know this, but Abe Lincoln you, fought, right? In yeah, the United Wars. States was basically constantly at war with an Indian tribe at some point or the other for most of this time. Most of what we yep. call the Wild West. They were always at war with some sort of tribe, the government. And it's really something that's glossed over a lot, I feel like, in American history. And it really like is. A lot of curriculums and stuff like that. It's talked about, like the Seminole War, and it, it's there, and they'll mention it. And especially during, like, I guess, a little bit during the Manifest Destiny time and things of that nature. And it's referred to, but it's not really gone into detail as much as it definitely deserves to be. And therefore, if anything, cowboys weren't necessarily fighting Indians. It was the American soldiers that were fighting Indians. When it comes to cowboys themselves, they're really like the heyday of cowboy really only lasted about 20, um, roughly 20 years. You know, I would say it was 1866 to 1886. And that's when about 20 million cattle were driven by cowboys on horseback from Texas to different northern, you know, railheads or places where uh, railroads started ultimately. So let's kind of get into this this 20-year period of, of a cowboy. After the Civil War, there was a huge demand for beef, right? And this is essentially caused by the fact... Burgers, right? Exactly, right? But also is the growing cities in the East, and there's this massive desire for meat. Now, Chicago Union Stockyards opened in 1865, right? And that becomes like the gateway for distributing beef to the entire North, I guess, North, you know, I would say... I would say northeast, southeast, right? Yeah. Let's just go that route. So what essentially starts to happen here, here is you have this creation of these cow towns, towns that are created, Dodge City, they're created near railroads. And the idea here is that you would have cattle, that's free grazing cattle. Um, most, of them were, most of the cattle actually was in the Mexico-Texas border, and they would be driven up north to these cow towns where they would be essentially loaded onto trains and then brought over to Chicago from which it would, they would you know, meatpacking, they were butchered and sold as meat. The cowboys got their name from, it was basically this dirty job. Their job was literally to move cattle up from these free range cattle areas to so, these cow towns. Yeah, and it was, and they're outside during this time. And that's one thing that, People might not know about cowboys, in even the old west too, is that these individuals, lack of a better term, they smelled, they reeked. Really bad. Um, yeah. And that was something that I, I was reading some of the Native Americans, and they were very like shocked by this when, it, when the hygiene of these cowboys, because they would see them, and this isn't like the west, this isn't the, you know, the, the heat is intense, the desert heat, and they're wearing like thick clothing, long, long pants and everything all wrapped up, and I, it's only going to make things worse. And during this time, people did not bathe very often. They would actually go months without bathing uh, at a time. And they seemed absolutely fine with it. And the natives were repulsed by this. They write about it. Like they said, this is very strange for them. And they weren't, they were more accustomed to the elements. But here you have these cowboys. They're basically surrounded by cattle, right? They're riding a horse the whole time. And they're just sweating. They're getting dirt all over them. And they're just not bathing either. So you can just imagine like, the odor yeah, for, that was basically, you know. Yeah, for weeks at a time. For, 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 and more than months at a time. They're just not yeah. bathing. And it was the idea, too, that I know there was an idea back then that you didn't want to bathe that often either because the dirt, the clogging of your pores would keep um, bacteria and disease out, which isn't, you know, considered science that's fact not, anymore. But that yeah, was, that's, that not was that, yeah. that's not true at all. Yes. But like, <laughs> you think about now, they're telling you you wash your hands every 10 minutes, right? Go wash your hands, go wash your hands, go wash your hands, sanitize, sanitize, sanitize. In the Old West, that was not happening. 
Yeah, no. Not even close. So, so during that 20 year span, right, as I mentioned, like 18, you know, 66 to 86, you have as many as 55,000 people working the plains as these cowboys driving these large herds cattle, yeah. uh, up, you know, of cattle. And believe it or not, about like a third of them were African American and Mexican. A lot of people, specifically, like you said, Hollywood at the beginning, it doesn't really show you that. You know, you would think that these were all Anglo Saxon super tall John Wayne types, but one third of all cowboys were indeed minorities. And as you mentioned, cowboy works usually 10 to 14 hours a day on a ranch or 14 hours or so, you know, on a trail. Some cowboys were as young as 15 years old. uh, And most of them by the age of 40 were pretty much done. Like they, they were literally hard life. Yeah. It's a hard life. Cowboys were very poor. So like at, at most, a cowboy might own a saddle, but for the most part, the trail horse that he was riding usually belonged to his boss. Um, he was an expert rider and a roper, but the gun that cowboys had, you know, TV would make you think that they were used to kind of fight the bad guys and outlaws, but really it was more to protect the herd from wild or diseased animals, you know, that like then really fend off outlaws. These long drives lasted about three months at a time. Uh, they included one cowboy for every 250 to 300 head of cattle. And there's always a cook that drove this chuck wagon and set up the camp. And then a wrangler who, you know, kind of cared for the extra horses. But there's always a trail boss. They earned about 100 bucks or more per month. And their job was to really kind of supervise the, the drive and also negotiate with settlers and Native Americans. But um, if you look at these cowboy drives that lasted 20 years, they try to avoid all the areas where Native American tribes that were hostile resided, right? Like they didn't they, well, drive- fight, Fighting didn't serve any purpose. Yeah, they would die mostly from like trying to forge a river. Like, like remember that game we used to play all the time when you were younger? Oregon um, Trail. Oregon Trail. I actually still play that with my students when we talk about Western Expansion. But, you know, dysentery. I know that's the one thing you remember, right? Believe it or not, they actually died more from lightning. A cowboy statistically died more from lightning and or drowning than from a gunshot. Every night they would pile all of their spurs and like buckles and other metal objects at the edge of the camp. So that way it would kind of avoid attracting lightning bolts. Like they all kind of made like a little TP on the side. They they understood the idea of metal conducting electricity, but they didn't understand the uh, concept of soap. Oh, bathing. Yeah, I know. Crazy. (laughs) <laughs> well, the thing about the cowboys, I know you're talking about the cowboys a lot. And when people think of cowboys, they often think of like the cowboy hat, right? Yep. I remember you, when you went to Texas, you had all those fancy cowboy hats and you were sending pictures and you looked so, so cool in them. But um, hey, hey, I did look cool in them. But um, those are not actually the cowboy hats. <laughs> when you buy one of those special cowboy hats, those aren't the cowboy hats that people act that they actually wore. Those, yes. those bigger hats that you see like people in the West wearing now, Texas and stuff like that. Um, there's a big business wearing those types of hats, what you saw um, Clint Eastwood wearing, you know, those movies. Yeah. Those weren't the hats they wore. They were very similar. It's like the hats that they wore, which they still wore hats to keep the sun up. They were similar to like those brawlers that the um, were very popular in London and stuff at the time. That was more, more yeah. like the wardrobe that they do. Those bigger hats, were just, it was unpractical. There's no way they would stay on when you were uh, riding. So the cowboy kind of ends. Essentially, ranchers overstocked the range, right? And as a result, there's a shortage of good grazing land and a huge surplus of beef right that's step one and then farmers absolutely hate cowboys because the way they look at it is um any form of open range where cattle herds just kind of 
trample over farmers' crops, especially when they're trying to cross hundreds of miles with this cattle. That hurt a lot of different farms, farmland. But then there was one invention that pretty much ends cowboys and open range, and that is barbed wire. Once barbed wire comes out, um, it allowed farmers, ranchers to kind of keep cattle from wandering across property lines. Um, but also it kind of prevented the idea of free range because every time you try to herd a, uh, a cattle, you couldn't because you were trespassing someone's land. I mean, these guys were so intense. They would actually enclose open rangers. They would enclose um, private property that wasn't theirs. Um, sometimes they would actually enclose like roads, you know, anything. Just They would just put barbed wire everywhere. And that kind of ended it. So they had no need for it anymore. It was a lot cheaper. Yeah, so the ranchers kind of downsized after that, and they raised smaller herds of more higher quality stock. They would say, you know, so they but also all that all that overgrazing has effects years later with the with the dust bowl. That's one of the effects that cause it. So you see how these yeah. cow, the cowboys and these overgrazing of all this cattle lead to what happens during the you know the nineteen twenty or nineteen thirties with the with the dust bowl. That's a direct result. Yeah, kind of I never thought of that. Actually. Interesting little. See? Do you ever watch Western movies? Do you ever no? You're not I used to watch them more um, with my father. He would make me watch those in um, kung fu movies all the time when I was younger. Whenever I go to my dad's house now, he's 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 got some uh, that Western channel on. He's like, "Oh, this is a great show." I'm like, "That is was made in 1953." I'm not, you know, but yeah, yeah. he likes it. So you know, he jam. enjoys it. He enjoys it. All right. So before we move on from cowboys, uh, any myths that we want to kind of debunk a little bit about the cowboys? Yeah, we were I mean, talking about they didn't really fight Indians. They didn't right? fight Indians, no. Um, the, well, you know, everyone thinks of cowboys besides the hat. They think of the whole idea of carrying guns. True. And most cowboys, they might have carried a gun. They couldn't usually bring them into towns. That's a myth I guess we can get into a little bit later, a bit more. But you weren't really allowed to carry guns into a lot of the towns that you see. And even then, yeah. most people probably weren't carrying guns everywhere. It just wasn't as big of a deal as what you see in the movies also. Having the yep. guns and stuff like there were shootouts, obviously, some more famous than others, but they were never as big as what, like, you know, the movies and stuff like that, which like everybody in the town has guns. You didn't really see that. It wasn't that, it wasn't really as lawless. Um, with that, see, I was said, doing research, right? It's good, good point with the guns. I was doing research that it said that a cowboy carried a gun or two, but if you ever drew it on a person, it was probably on a farmer who erected like a fence across his cattle trail. Yeah, they know, weren't shooting from, and shooting from shooting from riding a horse. Where a revolver is incredibly difficult. It's not something that just like the average person is going to be able to do. Even even these cowboys, it'd be as remember like you said they didn't have a lot of money. So even having a gun, having the ammunition, they're not going to have. They're not going to be wasting it to practice. It just wasn't as common as what a lot of uh, what a lot of the movies would like you to think. Nuts. All right, so let's uh, you know let's let's talk about some of these outlaws and and lawmen. Well, if you want to start, I guess we can start with one of the most well-known outlaws of all time, right? Billy the Kid. Yep. Um, so he's obviously a, a huge legend of the Old West. Um, not much is actually known about the early years. They know he was born William Henry McCarthy Jr., uh, probably in New York City. He was orphaned at the age of 14. And that's when he eventually moved um, out west, where his days as a Wild West outlaw, gunfighter, like were, became famous. And one reason he was called the Kid, he was young when he was killed, but also he, was, um, he looked very young, too. And wasn't he like 21 when he died? Yeah, there's that one famous picture of Billy the Kid that's out there. And they always talk about Billy the Kid, the reason he was such a good gunfighter, which is also debated, is because he was left-handed. 
but because of the because that one picture, it looks like he's holding a gun in his left hand. But what they've actually figured out is how the film was used during that time. It reversed everything, like, like in a mirror, basically. So he was yeah. actually probably right-handed. You can actually look at the rifle because the rifle is loaded in the right part, in the uh, right side. Like you wouldn't be left-handed loading a having a right-side loading rifle. Billy the Kid. But there's a lot of other facts about him, obviously. But what do you have for well, Billy? Yeah, I mean, he. He gets going to Billy Kid a little bit. People like Billy the Kid. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to start. Songs with about him, right? Everything. Most of these towns that sprung up out west um, didn't necessarily. Like, it's almost like they were ahead of the rest of the nation. The law, that's what they called the Wild West, because the law never really got there, right? You would have yeah. a small town that was often built on a railroad or near a railroad. That was the whole thing. Or it was a stagecoach stop. That's essentially what it was. And you would have one lawman. First of all, this one lawman, whenever they arrested somebody, they had to wait for a judge, a traveling judge to uh, that actually made his or you know his rounds in, in like an entire state. They come by, yeah, so they're just in jail until the judge got there. Exactly. So this guy would, you know, you have one lawman that would try to throw these, you know, whoever did something bad, um, people in jail, and then he would wait for this judge that, you know, the judge is going to be here in four weeks. And then the judge would come there in four weeks, hear all the cases, and oftentimes they would hang somebody, you know. However, it got to the point that a lot of times these lawmen never waited for the judge. Kind of like they took the matters into their own hands because... That's basically what happened with Billy the Kid, too. Yeah. Oh, off the, and the sheriff, Pat Garrett, just shot him. And I believe in the back, right? Wasn't he shot in the it back? It was in the back, yep. And then he wrote a book about it. Yeah, he yeah he became famous basically for shooting Billy the Kid. And Billy the Kid was even famous during his own time. Um, so much of the fact that I think they said when he, with his first biography was actually published just a few weeks after his death. That he became very famous, and even after he died, settlements out west uh, became very notorious for as outlaw towns. Right, you had uh, Tombstone, you had Dodge City, Deadwood, El Paso. Actually, uh, El Paso in one year in 1881 had a new um, lawman or sheriff every single month because the one that was there prior died. That's how violent these places were. What essentially started to happen in like the late 1880s is like Tombstone, Dodge City, Deadwood. You mentioned this before. It was banned to carry any concealed weapon by civilians within town limits. And eventually it got to the point that sometimes you couldn't even carry open carry guns. Like so when you came into these towns, um, you had to actually give your gun and leave it at the sheriff's office because they're trying to avoid. Yeah, they like, didn't want that. They didn't want the violence. They didn't want it to be known as a violent town, they didn't want more people to come in. If it got that reputation as being like an outlaw town, it's it's like tourism today. If, if it feels unsafe, people aren't going to go. Yep. And then since we're talking about Billy the Kid, let's let's talk about some of the famous or infamous lawmen. We'll kind of intertwine and go you know between the bad guys and the good guys. But the first recorded quick draw duel, right? That is that's historically recorded was actually between um, Wild Bill Hickok. And Davis Tut in 1865, and it was fought in the town square. That's a famous one. That's that's what basically made Wild Bill Hickok like his. Yes, famous. Yeah, so he he's fought in a town square in Springfield, Missouri. So there's bad blood between these two guys. Uh, they're actually former friends, but it was this was over a girl, um, and then it finally got really bad because someone said something. Someone was hooking up with somebody, so a duel is called over. All right, um, and. Believe it or not, the way that they set this up back then is it was a much you would stand about 70 meters apart, but you would stand sideways. You weren't facing one another. And the reason why you would stand sideways in these, you know, quick draw 
duels is so that way you would make or present a smaller target. And then before you draw your gun and shoot, so imagine you're standing sideways, 70 meters apart, and then boom, they draw their guns and they shoot. So Tut missed, and Wild Bill's bullet pierces um, Tut's heart, right? Interestingly, though, Hickok is arrested two days after the duel and tried for murder because it's like, wait, you can't just have a duel in the middle of, you know, of, uh, of a town. You're not supposed to do that, right? There's a lawman for that. Like, anyway, so he is... Um, he was definitely guilty of manslaughter. That's what the, uh, the judge advised the jury. All right. He's guilty of manslaughter, but um, they applied this unwritten law of a fair fight, which was a very big and out West. So the idea, well, it was a fair fight. They were both shooting at one another. So anyone could have killed somebody. And because of that, he is acquitted and then later works in Kansas as a marshal um, and sheriff of Ellis County. Right. And eventually he actually moves as a, and becomes a marshal of Abilene as well. Um, and he's involved in many, many more fatal gunfights. But um, eventually he's relieved of his duties because he accidentally shoots one of his deputies. You don't so, want to do that. That's your job. No, no, he was like a, he was kind of like a violent, violent guy. Um, Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. But yeah, so he had an interesting death too. Do you remember reading about his death? I did not see that other than the fact of how he so, got killed. So civil war happens, right? He he serves as a scout and a spy. Afterwards, again, you know, he becomes a marshal in Abilene, Kansas. He was killed, he was shot in the back, uh, while he was holding a pair of aces and a pair of eights in a poker game. Yeah, so that's where you get the phrase aces and eights, yeah. Yep, and also the hand is still known to this day as Dead Man's Hand because he was shot while he was holding that. So in case you're ever wondering where that came from, that's where that came from. And then along with him was uh, another Calamity Jane. You might have probably read about Calamity Jane. Yeah, well, she kind of, she was like the female version of him. And they, she kind of told stories. She was also a, a big time storyteller, outlandish stories, things of that nature. And it was always a rumor they were together, but they think that Calamity Jane just kind of made that up. And there's no real proof to that. It's just more of like, it just... People just like the idea of having these two larger life icons basically be together, like Wonder Woman, Superman type of deal. You know, yep. that's that sort of thing. But um, she was born in Missouri, and she grew up adventurous. Um, she was famous for her tagline was dressing, shooting like a man, and drinking like one too. That was basically her um, her big thing, her like claim to fame. But she was very skilled. Um, toured with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, all yeah, the way up. That, was, that was super famous. Yeah, it actually appeared in the 1901 uh, Pan American Exposition in upstate New York. Um, but she was because of celebrity and she was an alcoholic and that's actually what she wound up dying from at the age of 51. And she was buried next to Hitchcock, Hitchcock, Hitchcock. Yeah. You know, when we, once we're talking about this idea of lawmen as well, there's one particular agency, Pinkertons. They were a private agency. A lot of people don't realize that. So they were a private agency, but they were contracted oftentimes by the government as well, not just by individuals to kind of clean things up. So, Alan Pinkerton is a pioneering detective, right? Uh, he starts this detective agency. He's appointed Chicago's first detective in 1849. And then he launches this Northwestern Police Agency, which is basically the Pinkertons. 
And uh, in mid-1850s, so this is before Abe Lincoln becomes president, um, Pinkerton is engaged in this Illinois Central Railroad um, to protect their trains from being robbed as they go west. And um, he solves a number of different robberies, and that's where he meets the company's lawyer for the Illinois Central Railroad, and that is Abraham Lincoln. So once Lincoln is elected president um, and the Civil War starts, Lincoln actually calls Pinkerton again to head his like personal security and run the Union Intelligence Service, um, the, like a precursor to like Secret Service. So the Pinkertons actually um, protect Abe Lincoln in during Civil they have War. A long, they have a long history to the Pinkertons. Yes, yeah, like, so, a lot of the labor, the Union busting in the 1920s. Yeah, that's all Pinkerton detectives. There's a very famous picture of Alan Pinkerton. I can't say that. Jeez. Uh, he's standing next to U.S. Um, President Abe Lincoln. It's, a, it's from 19, I'm sorry, 1862. Um, after this, he kind of establishes, you know, this private law enforcement agency. And he, you know, goes out west. And that's mostly where you have these gangs that are kind of running crazy and robbing banks and trains. And he's basically their detectives or law enforcement for hire. You know, it's like, hey, this town only has one lawman and it's... A terrible town. You have all these bad guys that are coming here and robbing stuff. You know what? Let's get the Pinkertons. So they're like and bounty hunters, right? Somewhat. What happened? They're like bounty hunters. They're like the Mandalorian. Exactly. That's literally what they were. They're, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, they're Boba Fetts and stuff like that. So they did famously fail to catch Jesse James, though. Well, you hear about Jesse. That's a good segue. I was just going to think about Jesse ah, James. I knew right? I was going to say. So yeah. I, Jesse James, so he's in there with all the other names. Someone will get you someone like, like Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid. He was another one of these celebrated bank robbers, train robbers, went along with his brother, Frank, and they led um, a group known as the James Younger Gang. Um, the, they fought for the Confederate Army during the Civil War, and they have some nasty things that they did to a lot of the Union soldiers and abolitionists during the time, during the Civil War. Then the war ends, and they're kind of lost. They don't know what else to do. So they go to, they go to robbing trains, bank stagecoaches, and they actually becomes kind of like celebrity status um, starting in the late 1860s, 1866. And they actually do this for over two decades. They're on the run. And what happens is they eventually re recruit a new gang member by the name of Robert Ford. And he's actually promised by authorities, they like, all right, we want you to infiltrate in the um, James Younger gang, yeah, inf infiltrate the gang, the gang. And they say, because he had his own past, Robert Ford. And they say, if you get into this gang, the James Younger gang, and you kill James, all your past crimes will be forgiven. You'll, you'll get a pardon in all those past crimes. So that's what he does. He joins their gang, and then when he gets the opportunity, he just shoots Jesse James, and that's it. And now he his life is – he doesn't have to worry about going to jail, at least for any of the crimes he committed up to that point. Loyalty among outlaws. What are some of the other bad guys that we have here, or good guys for that matter? Well, so as we had to let's look at some of the like lawmen or someone who's kind of complicated, yeah. right? Um, you think of Jesse James. You think of Billy the Kid. So you also think of Wyatt Earp. Yeah. Wyatt Earp. And he was also a complicated frontiersman, right? He had a bunch of different – he was savory. He was unsavory. He was his businessman. He worked in a uh, brothel as a bouncer. He was a gambler. And he had a lot of run-ins with the law before he decided basically to become the law. You ever think of like uh, why Earp? We have like that mustache, right? The lawman, everything like that. Him and Doc Holliday. Um, obviously, right? The famous um, shootout at the OK Corral. Yeah. Um, he basically comes to the West looking for easy money. And then he found himself in Dodge City as an assistant marshal where he would spend most of his days maintaining the peace. He would gamble a lot, drink, those, those sorts of things. And then in 1879, him and a, um, several of his brothers moved to Tombstone, Arizona, hoping again to get rich because there was a silver boom. almost like a gold rush, but with silver in that area. 
And while they were there, they found a, a lot of other uh, outlaws of the Cowboys there. So they team up with Earp teams up with his friend Doc Holliday and his brothers, and they have that legendary shootout at the OK Corral in 1881. Yep. Um, as they say that despite all the gunfights, like Wyatt Earp was in right, he was never um, shot. His entire yeah, life. Yeah, that was one thing. He was, like, one he was in a few, like a decent number of. Um, now the OK Corral um, gun battle, right? That gunfight that took place in uh, in Tombstone actually didn't take place at the OK Corral. They said it took place actually behind it. Yeah. And it only lasted for thirty seconds. So it I wasn't, did, I did read it that, wasn't yeah. particularly. And you watched a movie. It's it's like this massive this massive gunfight, and they didn't actually last that long. People would run yeah. out of ammunition. They would actually hit somebody, or they would just stop fighting, and kind of realize, man, we're shooting at each other. Let's let's stop this. Yeah, let's uh, calm down it's, there. For it's, a probably, it's probably a good move. Or they would just they would just decide they would get hit at some point. Yeah, you can't really dodge bullets that much. I would I would think not. Right. If you look at um, the other like bad guys, right? The Wild Bunch. That one had your Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a cool story about the Wild Bunch. They're a gang of horse thieves, which is something we should probably talk about because. Out west, if you were, if you were a horse thief, there was only one punishment for you, and that was death by hanging. Yeah, that was a, considered a horrible, horrible crime. Horrible crime. Like you would actually be more forgiven for killing somebody than you were for stealing yeah. their horse. Which is um, crazy when you think about it. Yeah, right. It's insane. So oftentimes, if you if someone stole your horse and out you were out in the prairie and you caught up to the person that stole your horse. And you decided to hang this person from a nearby tree, you would not be trialed, nor would you be arrested by the you know the lawmen in the nearest town if you simply prove that this person tried to steal your horse. It's like, oh well, okay, you could then you could take the matters in your own hands if, if they try to steal your horse. So the Wild Bunch was this gang of horse thieves and bank robbers, right? And they include some really famous gunfighters like uh, Butch Cassidy, uh, Butch B- and Harry Sundance Kid and Kid Curry. Um, one time they stole $65,000 from a train. However, the bills were unsigned by the bank, which is something that they needed to be done at the time. Um, and they were therefore worthless. So that was like their biggest bust, but obviously money was worthless. Another time, and you could, you could probably Google this. They took a picture of themselves after a bank robbery, like in really nice clothes. And they send this picture to the bank with a thank you note. That's also what makes them famous too. Is people see this and they we kind of romanticizes their idea, like, oh, look at these guys. You know, they're going after the establishment, whatever you want to call it, and they're taunting them. You know, like, thank you for allowing us to steal your money. Yeah, and then eventually these guys go to uh, they escape to like South America. They probably died in a uh, yeah fight in South America, right? right? A shootout in South America, yeah. Yeah. They fled to New York City first and then to South America. They knew it was just too dangerous for them to stay around here. We have Annie Oakley. I mean, how do how do we not talk about Annie Oakley? Annie Oakley, I know that she was often called Little Miss Shoreshot, and um, she was Ohio native, and she was one of these like really, she was a sharpshooter, and she actually started in her teens. And again, this was shows like with Hara Calamity Jane, there's Annie Oakley, some other ones uh, individuals as well. That if your skills, even if you were a woman at the time, which didn't really have any real rights, I actually was reading this thing that. The only women that actually could that actually own land or were very successful during this time, in the old in the Wild West, were actually the prostitutes, because they said what? they didn't they didn't actually have to be um, shackled by marriage, where their husband controlled everything, where their husband controlled their land and things like that. That the prostitutes they're not you know we're not condoning the profession or anything like that, 
but they were able, they actually made a really good living. The madams actually provided healthcare to a lot of the, the, um, the girls and they had, they were protected a lot of times from like the bouncers with, with, with bouncers and stuff like that to make sure things were, um, they were, they were safe. Um, anyway, Annie Oakley that obviously doesn't have her. She has this talent as a sharpshooter and she was dared to compete with expert marksman, Frankie Butler. And she actually beat him narrowly, but she beat him in a shooting contest. And, um, she eventually actually, um, marries him, <laughs> but she did meet okay. Buffalo Bill, uh, becomes one of his stars attractions in his wild west show. That's one of those cool shows that we actually were like around that time, you know, you could go and watch yeah. one of those wild west shows. It'd be kind of interesting. Um, she had, she met a bunch of royalty. She met world leaders. She even be, uh, befriended the Native American Chief Sitting Bull at this time. And um, even upon her death, she actually was um, setting records in shooting contests and prepping for a comeback uh, when she actually died in 1926. And her husband so devastated that he followed her um, to the grave just a few weeks later. And they just would go around like shooting things with each other. That was like romantic for them, seeing what they could shoot. But yeah, it was interesting, interesting characters back then. Again, it wasn't what we see on TV, but sometimes the the fact is more interesting or even stranger than the fiction that you saw on TV, on the movies, persona. There's a couple of crazy stories that I think maybe we could like, you know, finish up with. But um, did you read the story about the failed bandit, Elmer McCurdy? Yeah, well, I I saw that one. That pops up a lot. But he was, it wasn't so much just... Yes, he was a failed bandit, but he's actually more famous after death than he was. Yeah. So it's, like a, like, it, it's a sick story. It really is. Yeah. So um, Elmer McCurdy, right, guys, um, robs a passenger trade, right, that he thinks contains like thousands of dollars. So he robs this passenger train, you know, like a real outlaw out west. And this is the end of the Wild West. This, this is, is like early 1900s. Yeah. yeah. He disappears. Well, first of all, he only, he only made off at $46. Yeah, it was like 46 bucks, right? Yeah. yeah. And then he's eventually shot by lawmen shortly thereafter. And McCurdy's unclaimed corpse, and no one claims his body because no one really knows this guy. It's embalmed, right, with arsenic like preparation. And then it's sold by this undertaker to this traveling carnival and basically exhibited as a sideshow curiosity. Like they have this guy's embalmed body and it's just like a sideshow and carnival for about 60 years mccurdy's body is bought and sold by various different like haunted houses wax museums you know kind of used like a prop or an attraction like oh, oh, yeah, it's well, just then it made its way into me like you said the wax museums in the in haunted houses all in this area and yeah. but people thought it like was like the 70s in the 70s they thought it was actually that just like a wax figure like oh this is a wax figure it wasn't until um it was in amusement parks in long beach where um, it was actually used in the filming of the $6 million man, that television show. Yeah. Someone moved it and accidentally snapped a finger off. And that's when they realized, wait a minute, this doesn't, this isn't wax. This is a real person. And go like, well, what's going on here? What's going on? And they did, I guess, some, uh, they were able to trace it back. And then he's eventually buried um, 66 years after his death. <laughs> yeah. They uh, buried him in a famous Boot Hill Cemetery in Dodge City, Kansas, because they said he was a, a Western outlaw. It's just like, what? Yeah, How does that happen? Imagine it breaks that finger off. Oh, my goodness. It's like, oh, this is a cool prop. Oh, no. It's crazy, crazy. Another crazy story from West. Uh, you told me that before we started recording today. It's the the camels. Oh, I, that, I, was, I, I don't know. I, I got into like a little bit of like a rabbit hole with these camels, like researching this. <laughs> because I'm Sorry, a, so I'm, what do you got? Well, basically, the American frontiersmen, they had this idea that, all right, 
It's hot here. It's a desert. The horses might have a hard time, but no one's not going to have a hard time. The camels. So they buy, um, the United States government actually buys a bunch of camels from Egypt. And the idea is that they are going to train them to be, they're going to ride them. They're using them as pack animals in the military. And, yeah, this is like 1850s, right? Yeah. And they actually established a base, Camp Verde in Texas in 1856. And they're there and there's some success with it. A lot, the camels are not as easily tamed as Wait, Hold on. You got to get it with a name. The U.S. Camel Corps. Yeah, U.S. Camel Corps. Corps. Uh, yeah. Camp Verde, Texas, 1856. And they're, they're hard to train. They spit. They attack. They didn't really want to listen. So they weren't exactly – they're not as, as well as – domesticated as like all the horses, but they, they served, they did serve their purpose. But when the civil war broke out, the, the court, the corpse actually disbanded. And most of the camels were actually sold to circus, ring the brother circus. That's where most of them went, but a number of them actually escaped into the countryside and their descendants were um, last spotted feral camels living in Texas up until at least 1941, where it was the last known sighting of a feral camel in Texas. There's been reports since then, even recently, it's just like 2000, I think 12 or 13, where there was all this, someone just said, well, there's a camel running by. Again, they don't know if that again, could be someone's private collection, you know, who knows, like with the Tiger King and stuff like that out there, people like that out there. But there, there was actually a pack of feral camels living in Texas to at least 1941, all the way from 1856. These wild camels. So that'd be kind of interesting if you just like walking around and. Wow. Kind of crazy. I just thought it was like one of those things I never really heard about before. And it, I, I get the idea, the concept. All right, we're in the Great Plains. It's like a desert. What what animal that's good in the desert? A camel. And who like doesn't forget? Like, oh, I left the gate open. All the camels got out. Like, ah, you know, like that's what happened. Like, the camels just escaped. Someone like didn't didn't lock them up. And there's something. There's another. Uh, there was like a study that was done um, that looked at how violent the Wild West was, and, and like kind of how like it really wasn't that violent. I know, um, right? I know, we're kind of like, you know, we're like destroying people's ideas of the Wild West here and then just replacing it with camels. Yeah, I know. The wildest <laughs> thing about the Wild West was that there were some camels that got loose. Although this study, right? So look, this study was done in 1980. And at the time, they actually looked for comparison purposes at Miami. And they said there was, in 1980, there was 515 homicides in Miami, right? That means if you were one of the city's 1.5 million residents, your odds of being murdered were like one in 3,058, right? It was statistically the most dangerous place to live in the United States in 1980. So one in 3,058, um, those are your odds of being murdered. But if you lived in Dodge City in 1880, your odds of being murdered would have been one in 996, right? But bear with me. Uh, according to the study, that's like saying like Frontier Dodge City would have the highest homicide rate on Earth, like three times, 300 times higher than 1980s Miami. Right. But what that does not take into account is the sheer fact that if you look at the actual um, population, that city only had 996 residents in 1880. So it like it looks like it would be super violent, but it really wasn't that violent in comparison to what's happened to America since then. Like you make the argument that the wild west was wild and there's no law and everyone's just shooting everyone, but actually it's more dangerous to live in the United States today than it was to live then. Oh, that makes sense. It's just with more people and everything else. And more, I guess, guns, guns. I, yeah. right? Stronger yeah. guns and stuff like that. 
Anyway, I mean, that's that's pretty much all I got. Uh, you got anything else? Well, I just saw one thing. Um, when people think of like the saloons and stuff, they think of like the whiskey. And what I saw was that the um, whiskey that was sold in saloons during this time was a combination of burnt sugar, alcohol, and chewing tobacco. And apparently it was extremely um, strong. Um, also referred to as um, – there was also a popular drink called cactus wine, which was made from uh, tequila and peyote teas. Um, and that term fire water for whiskey uh, originated during this time uh, from early fur traders throwing whiskey on a fire to prove the Indians that it had a high alcohol content. That's why they would like sell it to them. And that's one of the things that the Indians wanted was they wanted you know the alcohol that the, they wanted. Them, the traders wanted fur. They wanted alcohol. And that was one of the things they did and to prove it. They would throw the, throw the whiskey onto the fire and to hire the flames. That's the ones that the natives, that the Indians wanted basically. And I think we should, uh, before we go, we should kind of talk about the idea of stagecoaches and stuff and like what a stagecoach coach was. And before railroads got out west, uh, you know, if you wanted to go from one town to another, you needed to hop on a stagecoach, right? And when you went on a stagecoach, oftentimes you would have to go through, you know, you would travel probably a full one or two days at a time where you were just going through the desert. And during that time, Think about it. There's one stagecoach with, let's say, five people inside going through this like completely empty desert. It was just asking to be robbed. And because of that, oftentimes stagecoaches were robbed. Um, not They weren't attacked by Native Americans as much as TV would want you to believe. They were mostly robbed by, by other guys that were outlaws. And therefore, each stagecoach had one like bodyguard that had a gun, a shotgun, um, that would sit next to the person that actually, you know, operated this, this, uh, stagecoach. That's where, that term. That's, where, that's where the term comes from. That's riding shotgun. So people, you know, when you think of, oh, I'm riding shotgun in today's terms in a car, you're sitting up front. Um, that's what it comes from. Sh- riding shotgun was literally a guy with a shotgun sitting next to the driver of the stagecoach. Um, and his job was to look out and be like, all right, let's make sure. Uh, stagecoaches used to get in the traffic jams basically all the time too. The larger ones. Really? Oh, that's well, they were only so many roads they could go on, or like these trails. Basically, yeah. they were kicking all this dust, so they have to stop for the dust to settle. And that's another thing that made it so easy for these outlaws just to to come. You know, these people have their life savings with them, and they're going cross country. Let's just go take it from them. Talk about stagecoach. Did you ever uh, read or hear about stagecoach Mary Mary Fields? Uh, it does ring a bell, but I didn't see that. I, I just... Oh, this is she's like one badass lady. Yeah, so she was uh, she was African American. She was born into slavery, um, 1832, and then she's freed after the Civil War. And then she basically works for different convents in Ohio, Montana, and becomes very notorious for drinking, smoking, whatever. But eventually, becomes basically an all-star mail carrier. Um, she's also the first African American female state route, you know, a mail carrier, um, in 1895 and she delivers mail by stagecoach. Um, so she kind of delivers mail by her own stagecoach and she's like her own shotgun, I guess. She actually was nicknamed stagecoach Mary because of her speed of delivery and how reliable she was. But she was also known for being fearless because she always traveled with a rifle. At one point it says that she faced stagecoach thieves, right. And is rumored to have fought off even like a pack of wild wolves with a rifle. Like she was the most reliable mail carrier in late 1800s Montana. Like that's crazy. Guys, look at look her up. Stagecoach Mary, intense lady. There's like pictures of her. 
I remember when I wanted to initially do this show, I, I said, hey, let's do something about... You wanted uh, to do this for a while. You love the, the Old West. Yeah, I do. I was going to do something about the Pony Express. And then you were like, yeah, that... that well, you can talk about it. The, Tony, the Pony Express, it gets all this fame and everything like that. And it, right, I get it. It's an interesting story, but it was around for, what, a year? Yeah, it's not long enough for a podcast. Well, I'm sure it's, you could, it's long enough for a podcast. <laughs> no, nah, that's cool. Uh, stories about it, you know? That's nuts. All right. So you, I think I'm going to... You can write your next book on it, Pete. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Saying that, actually, look at that. That's great. Segway. Um, I do have uh, my next book coming out. It's coming out on February 22nd. It is now available for pre-order on Amazon. It's called Denville 13, Murder, Redemption, and Forgiveness in Small Town, New Jersey. I think you might have inspired me to do like a true crime book. I, uh, serial killer in Law and Order, SVU talk. All right. So as always, just a quick reminder that uh, for those of you guys that are listening to us and you do tune in every week, thank you so, so much. Uh, please again click the subscribe button wherever you guys listen um, and also you know give us a rating if you if you like us if you don't like us do not give us a rating <laughs> um with that in mind now they're going to uh, give us one just on purpose so good job dang here. it dang it i screwed that up i hope everyone enjoyed this podcast please tune in again next week take it easy I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.